This is the word of the Lord from 2 Samuel, chapter 23, verse 8 through 23. David's mighty men. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Jeshebeth Shebeth, a Mennonite, he was the chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines, who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him, only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Aji, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Arujah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Bamenea went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marilyn. Uh, boys and girls can head out to story keepers and to nursery now. The 
kids are heading out, let me uh, lead us in prayer as we uh, prepare to look at the passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you've been uh, opening our eyes and instructing us and inspiring us, uh, uh, filling us with your spirit as you've opened your word to us. We pray that as we look at this passage uh, that may not seem particularly relevant to our lives, that you would indeed help us not only understand it, but see, see you apply it to our lives so that no matter uh, what kind of week we've had or where uh, we are positioned in our journey of faith right now, that this would be a time where we confidently, confidently can know that you are speaking to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you go through the door to the left at the front of the sanctuary of Dunleary Presbyterian Church in Dublin, where I served as pastor before coming here, you'll go down a few steps. You come to two doors. The, the door on the, on the right goes into what, at least during our time there, was a Sunday school room. But the door to the left goes into the minister's room. You go into that door and you look over to your left and there hanging on the wall are pictures of nearly all of the ministers who have served at that church uh, going back to 1827. William Freeman, John Armstrong, who actually happened to be born in New York, S.J. Hansen, Stuart Gardner, James Rutherford, James Park, David Caskey, some fellow called Andrew Smith, and Chris Kennedy. Some of you know this, but Chris actually had his final Sunday as the pastor this past month, and when he finally gets his visa sorted out, he's going to be coming to Pennsylvania uh, to pastor Lansdale Presbyterian Church in Hatfield, just 45 miles from here. I think they're worried that uh, we're creating a trend for <laughs> track from Dunleary to Pennsylvania. And while, while some might refer to those pictures in the minister's room as sort of a rogues gallery, it's uh, one way the church has sought to honor the now nine men who have served uh, up to this point that congregation in its near 200-year history. I tell you that because 2 Samuel 8 to 39 serves a similar purpose to those photos. In some ways, uh, the passage doesn't look like much more than a list uh, but it's intended to recognize those warriors who faithfully and loyally served David and his kingdom. In that sense, it's an honor roll of kingdom servants recorded by the writer so that we might know that David didn't fight these battles alone. These were David's, as it were, knights of the round table, men who came from every part of the kingdom. Indeed, some came from beyond his borders. But as I intimated in the prayer, a question that you might have been asking as Marilyn was reading that was, how is this of any relevance to my life today? So the question, which is a good one, is what can we learn from the passage? Well, here's, here's what today's sermon in a sentence is. It is that appropriate loyalty between Christian leaders and their people flows from a loyalty to God. We're going to think about this by following uh, the structure of the narrator. So we'll look first at the three, then we'll look at the other three, and then we'll look at the 30. Appropriate loyalty between Christian leaders and their people flows from a loyalty to God. But before we get to that, our first point, uh, let me just remind you uh, that this passage comes in the, final, uh, in the final four chapters of 2 Samuel, which comes after the end of the chronological account of the lives of Samuel 
and Saul and David that concluded in chapter 20. And these last four chapters are therefore, in a sense, bonus material, a collection of fragments, but as we saw last week, a carefully crafted collection of fragments organized, as I suggested last week, like a sandwich. So last week we looked at the central filling the meat of the sandwich. We looked at at, uh, how that was David's psalm and his final uh, final words. And this week we're moving out a layer uh, to what is above and below the central filling. And in this layer are these accounts of David's mighty men. And the first part of this comes back in chapter 21, verses 15 to 21, where the narrator highlights four of David's mighty men. I'll leave it to you to read those on your own about the four who are mentioned there, their achievements against Philistine giants, even against one whose fingers and toes added up to 24. But here in chapter 23, we come to the parallel passage uh, to that one in chapter 21. And in this one, we're first introduced to the ones referred to as the three. The first two of these, we might call three musketeers of David, are mentioned in verses 8 to 10. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had, Joshua, Bashabeth, a Tachamonite. Sorry, sorry, Marilyn, you did a much better job of this than I am going to do. He was chief of the three. He wielded a spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Now you have to admit, these are pretty impressive men. Joseph Bashabeth had all the qualifications to be David's minister of defense. He hadn't won his star sitting in a situation room planning battles on a scroll of maps. He had won his star's on a field. And we're told here that on one occasion he actually killed 800 men with a spear. Unless I missed it, I don't think there was a category of spear fighting in the Olympics this year, but if there was, I'd be willing to bet that Joshua Bashabeth would still hold the Olympic record. 800 in one sitting is pretty impressive. And then there's Eleazar, clearly another hard and brilliant warrior. The narrator accounts an incident where David and Eleazar were together and they taunted the Philistines. We might question the wisdom of such an action, especially as the Philistines not surprisingly get angry. They attack the Israelites and David's whole army suddenly disappears, leaving David and Eleazar to battle the Philistines on their own. They fought morning and afternoon, fighting, we're told, until Eleazar's hand became weary and clung to the sword. You figure either from just the locking up of his muscles or the gelling of his hand to the sword with blood or perhaps a combination of the two. Well, then the third of David's three musketeers comes in verses 11 to 12. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite, The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. My guess is that most of us aren't too familiar with the name of Shammah, but he's worth remembering, because here's, in a sense, another member of King David's SEAL Team team 6, who, when faced with this band of Philistines, refuses to back up, 
even for a lentil patch. And you're thinking, you know, really? I mean, Shama really doesn't seem like a pick-your-fight sort of guy. He, he, he knew that the issue wasn't the content of the patch. I mean, lentils are okay, but, you know, really worth fighting over. The issue wasn't the content of the patch. It was the owner of the patch because this was the king's ground. And for Shama, that made all the difference. So Shama actually is a great example for us today of how even in seemingly insignificant matters of life, matters that we might think could probably, we could probably just give some ground on in the grand scheme of things, that God calls us still to take a faithful stand. And the reason for that is because everything is Christ's in this world. As the 19th century Dutch theologian and prime minister Abraham Kuyper put it, a famous quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And because everything is Christ's, we who are Christ's are to take a Shammah-like stand on all matters that the Bible says matter. Matters of integrity, matters of sexual morality, matters of justice, all the way from matters of the sanctity of life to racial justice, matters of spiritual maturity. Those are things perhaps that we don't think that we have to take a stand on, but the Bible says these are important, so you should. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Because the issue isn't the content of the patch, it's the owner of the patch. So we have three great warriors, three mighty men, but so far we've passed over the most important words in this description. And those words are explicitly stated in the context of the victories of both Eleazar and Shammah, verses 10 and verse 12, the Lord gave a great victory. I suspect most of us don't remember this, but let me remind you from our series in 1 Samuel a few years ago of the description of those who first signed up to be part of David's army before he became king. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 to 2. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So David's on the run from Saul at this point, and he escapes to the cave of Adullam. We'll come back to that cave in a few moments. We're told David's family is there, but besides his family, we're told there is this motley crew made up of those who are in distress and in debt, and who are discontented. That that's what life under Saul had led to. And now these people had all fled to David. It's not the most auspicious beginning for a king to be. They're not exactly the kind of men you'd choose for an army. But these were the people looking to David, trusting to David to lead them to be their king. You have to say here in chapter 23 what a difference a few years make. We don't know exactly the timing of the events here in chapter 23, but among that motley crew of misfits were those who would become these mighty men. But you see, the narrator wants us to understand that it wasn't ultimately because, you know, these three musketeers were going to the Y every day and pumping iron. Their accomplishments may have looked like outstanding feats of human strength and ingenuity and courage, but they were much more than that because the Lord gave a great victory. These were the saving acts of God. It was the Lord 
who gave the might and the skill and the daring by which these deeds were achieved. That the greatness and importance of what happened ultimately lay in what the Lord was doing. And that's a good reminder for many of us. Many of you are gifted people, very gifted in different areas, but think of that word gifted. Well, you have your abilities, your skills, your achievements. It's ultimately all been gifted to you by the great gifter, the great giver, God himself, and that should guard all of us against any sort of pride and nurture in us an attitude of humility and gratitude, which is just one lesson that we can learn from this account of the three. Well, that brings us secondly to the other three. Uh, Follow as I read this amazing story in verses 13 to 16. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. And the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. And no one's quite sure at what point in David's career uh, this incident took place, but whenever it was, David again is in this cave of Adullam, and the Philistines appear to be everywhere. One detachment was southwest of, of Jerusalem in the Valley of Rephaim. It's also a garrison of them in David's hometown of Bethlehem, six miles south of Jerusalem, Adullam, uh, where, where David is, is about 12 and a half miles west, southwest of, of Bethlehem. But whatever point it was, three of these so-called 30 chief men were visiting David in that cave, we're told, around harvest time. And one day while they're there, David, probably with a sigh, says, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. A part of that craving was surely a wishful nostalgia, a memory from his younger years, Reminded me of a couple I married five or six years ago who were living in San Francisco, but originally were from here in Chester County and wanted to get married here. And on one visit prior to their marriage, I, I met them the day after they'd flown in from the West Coast. I asked them how their trip had gone the day before, and they said, great, and even better, the first place we went from the airport was to a Wawa to get our coffee. I have to confess, I don't quite get that, but then I didn't grow up here, but I know a lot of you feel the same way about Wawa coffee. But likewise for David, there was this certain wishful nostalgia, but there was more to this statement than that. It's also the yearning after a promise, that God had promised that the people of Israel would be given the land that David would be their king over. If David, as he was thinking, could draw water from that well, That would have signified that he was in control of Bethlehem and that this promise that now seemed so far off would at least have begun to be fulfilled. So David's comment was a wishful nostalgia in part. It was a yearning after a promise, but it was overheard by these three men. And so the three of them apparently start discussing this. And one of them said, did you hear that? Boss said he'd love a drink from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. And one of the others replies, you know, it's not like we're doing much here. Why don't we we go do it? 
And that's exactly what they decide to do, and off they go. And this whole thing would have been remarkable enough if, if the men had used stealth and secretly managed to secure some of the wa- Bethlehem water under the cover of darkness. But the narrator tells us that they broke through the Philistine lines, and then you have to imagine that they had to then fight their way into the city. So you can perhaps picture two of them just doing everything they can in order to hold off the Philistines while a third one draws the water up from the well and fills the water skin. And then having secured the water, they've got to risk their lives again, get out of there, escape, and make the trek back to the cave. And in so many ways, it just seems extremely reckless, but that only underlines the levels of devotion that David's men had for their master showed that they would do anything for him. It's a Hebrew word that we've already spent time thinking about in this sermon series that while not actually appearing in this passage, I think fits well with what we read here. It's the Hebrew word hesed. You may recall that we were thinking about this word when we were looking at the story of David and Mephibosheth back in chapter 9, and there the word was translated as kindness. But in some other places in the Old Testament, it gets translated as loyalty. And it is, as Han Robinson, my preaching professor in seminary, has put it, loyalty taken to the the high pitch of devotion. I think that's a good definition he gives. But as we saw in chapter 9, hesed is also the word that is used in the Old Testament to speak of God's love for us. So, for example, in Psalm 136, the psalmist tells us 26 times that God's hesed, his steadfast love, his loyalty to this high pitch of devotion extended to us. It endures forever. It never ends. But here in 2 Samuel 23, I think it would be the perfect word to describe how these three mighty men related to David. This was loyalty to David. This was loyalty taken to the high pitch of devotion. But listen to how Haddon Robinson then elaborates on this idea. He says, you often see that kind of loyalty among the people of God. In fact, I don't know what we'd do without men and women who are loyal to God with that high pitch of devotion. What amazes me, though, is as a leader that often in their loyalty to God, people become loyal to us. They do things for us, things we don't deserve. Sometimes to express a wish is to almost become their command, and they go out of their way to serve you as a Christian leader. Their devotion to God is shown to you. I know exactly what Robinson is talking about there, because I've seen it over and over again from so many of you in how your loyalty to God has become, uh, has, has meant a loyalty to me and now to Jeremy. I'd say to Jeremy, as you transition this afternoon to ordained ministry, I know you're only going to see this even more in the years ahead where God's people do things for their leaders that we simply don't deserve. And to all of you, I just want to say a heartfelt thanks from both of us for that. But I also want you to know that I am very aware of how easily such loyalty can be abused by leaders. There are sadly way too many stories of churches where such abuse has occurred, but one has been in the spotlight in recent weeks due to a Christianity Today podcast series on it, hosted by a guy called Mike Cosper, entitled The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. 
If you're not familiar with Mars Hill Church, it was founded in 1996 in Seattle by Pastor Mark Driscoll, was poised to become a long-term influential force in the American evangelical world. That is until its spiraling uh, descent and collapse in 2014. And the podcast, which I'd commend to you, uh, just lays out uh, brutally the story. Mike Cosper first lays out how Mark Driscoll's charisma and talents and personality contributed to massive growth and, and to a following, to a loyalty that stretched far beyond Seattle in its reach. But then he also describes how Driscoll's leadership involved abusive control and gaslighting and the use of the power of shame to hold people such that his entire ministry ended up as a kind of us versus them angry mentality. But for me, a large part of the value of this podcast is not just how it skillfully lays out the story of Mars Hill, but how Mike Cosper does a masterful job showing how the problems that wrecked that church are actually endemic across large bands of American evangelicalism today. In other words, no church is immune to the dangers, including this one, that no leader should ever translate people's loyalty as permission to exercise power coercively or abusively. David here certainly doesn't abuse the loyalty of his mighty men. Look at his response to their sacrificial act. But David, in verses 16 to 17, David would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. So David, instead of drinking the water, takes the water and he pours it out on the ground until there is a puddle at their feet. And then the thirsty soil just swallows that water, and within minutes, it's gone. And at first glance, you might think, you know, David's refusal to drink the water just seems a bit ungrateful and maybe even cruel after all they've done. But in fact, in his response, David's paying homage to his men. He realized that they had risked their lives to bring him this water, and that meant to him that this water was as good as their blood. It may have been the cherished water of Bethlehem, but to David, it represented the blood of these men, and the Old Testament law was clear, the blood always belongs to the Lord. And so David wouldn't drink it. He poured it out as a a libation, as a drink offering to God, not because it was trash, but because it was treasure, belonged to the Lord. David took the loyalty of his men, the loyalty, this loyalty taken to the high pitch of devotion, and he turned it over to God. That explains really why these men had responded to David as a leader to begin with. Because while, of course, he was their commander, they understood that he understood himself to be, before all of that, a servant of the Most High God. And so David took the devotion that was given to him by these other three and he gave it up to God. David's men were loyal to him. David was loyal to them because David was loyal to God. Such is the integrity of a Christian leader. Appropriate loyalty between Christian leaders and their people flows from such a loyalty to God. Well, that brings us then, thirdly and lastly, to the 30 uh, in verses 18 to 39. This section begins by highlighting two men of the 30. These two men were Abishai and Benaiah, who between them achieved some pretty impressive military feats as well, but who apparently did not quite attain 
to the three, the three that we met at the beginning of the passage. But from those two, then the narrator lists the others who were part of the 30. The very end, he actually tells us that there were 37 men who were part of the 30. That's not because someone wasn't very good at addition, but I assume because at various points, some of the initial 30 had to be replaced, and the 30 was more a title rather than an exact figure. But look with me at how the list ends from verses 37 to 39. This is beyond what I asked Marilyn to read this morning. Zelak the Ammonite, Nahari of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ara the Ithrite, Garab the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. As you read through the list of names, many of which I haven't read here, some of them are barely pronounceable, and, and most of them only appear once in all the pages of Scripture. And so I dare say that very few of us, if any, have heard, for example, of Ira and Garab the Ithrites. The vast majority of the, the 30 were, were Israelites, but not all, again, as a foreshadowing of the multi-ethnic, multinational nature of God's kingdom among the 30 there was, for example, Makkah, verse 34, Ammon, verse 37, who were foreigners. And there was one other foreigner in this list, the one person whose name you probably did recognize as I read the close of the list, Uriah the Hittite. And you come to the very last name in the list, and perhaps you think to yourself, now why did the narrator have to go and end the list like that? I mean, why does he have to spoil things by dredging up that painful memory when the story just was coming to such a satisfying conclusion? In case you weren't here for Jeremy's sermon on 2 Samuel 11 and don't know who Uriah the Hittite is, let me bring you up to speed. Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba, the husband of the woman with whom David committed adultery. And when David discovered that Bathsheba was pregnant, he ordered that Uriah be brought back home from the battlefield because he knew that if he could get Uriah back into bed with his pretty little wife while he was home, then David could cover up his adultery and perhaps get away with it. But Uriah's name is in this list for a reason, because Uriah was a mighty man a mighty warrior, loyal to his men, loyal to David, loyal to the cause. And he tells David, I can't do that. I can't go home right now to my wife. My men are still fighting in the field. I can't be disloyal to them. I can't enjoy the benefits of my marriage bed while they're engaged in conflict right now. And so Uriah remains in Jerusalem, refusing to go home to his wife, loyal to his men, and in total contrast to how he responded to the devotion of those three men in the cave of Adullam, David, in the words again of Haddon Robinson, David spilled out the water of Uriah's devotion like sewer water. David had Uriah murdered when he returned to the battlefield. It would be some years later that when Nathan the prophet would confront David about his sin, against Bathsheba, against Uriah. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 12. David confesses his sin. We have his confession in Psalm 51. David asked God for mercy. And you think, on what basis could David ask for mercy for his adultery, for his murder, 
sins that according to the Old Testament law were merited, merited death. Look with me at Psalm 51, verse 1. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. David asked for mercy based on God's hesed, his loyalty taken to the high pitch of devotion. But loyalty to what? Well, David knew that God had made promises, promises such as the one that he had made to, to David back in 2 Samuel 7, of a forever kingdom with a forever God in the line of David. And so David asked for forgiveness on the basis of God's own loyalty to his promises, on the basis of his loyalty to his own love, to his own forever kingdom. And God forgives him. But what David didn't know were the lengths to which God would go in order to remain loyal to that high pitch of devotion. Because it would mean God sending the mightiest of his mighty men, his own son, David's greatest son, Jesus, to be born in Bethlehem and to fight not against flesh and blood, to use the language of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against the spiritual forces of evil, against sin and death and the devil. Because, you see, Jesus had overheard the longing of our hearts, the craving of our hearts, in a similar way as he heard the longing of the, the heart of that woman in Samaria, recorded in John chapter 4, who comes to a well in the middle of a day to draw water. And Jesus tells her, you know, I, I have water which if you drink, you will never be thirsty again. I have the thing you're ultimately craving. It's the thing everyone is craving, even if they don't realize it, because it's the very presence of God himself. And to get that water for us, Jesus broke through enemy lines, went to the cross. On the cross, he cries out, I thirst, I thirst. On the cross, he cries out the first line of Psalm 22, a psalm of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knowing that later in that psalm, that same psalm, David had also said, I am poured out like water because Jesus voluntarily became a drink offering for us, experienced cosmic thirst for us so that we could be forgiven as David was forgiven and have the water of life that satisfies our deepest craving, our deepest longings, our deepest needs. Such was the loyalty of Jesus to us, to the highest pitch, the highest devotion. And that's a loyalty that never stops, it never ceases, because the steadfast love, the hesed, the loyalty of the Lord never ceases, it never comes to an end. His mercies are new every morning, every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. And when you and I soak in the reality of God's loyalty to us, one thing of many things, one thing that it leads to is an appropriate expression of loyalty between Christian leaders and their people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your loyalty to us built on your promises goes beyond our comprehension. Built on what Jesus has done for us, 
breaking through enemy lines, going to the cross to die in our place for our sins so that we might know your steadfast love, your hesed, your loyalty forever. Lord, may we live out of that reality, not only in the way that we relate to each other, but how we might take a stand like Shama in this world where the world pushes us so hard to, to accept its ways and to go in a different way than you have called us. May we, as Paul calls us to in Ephesians 6, take a stand to fight against the forces of the evil one, to pray and to remain faithful to Jesus. May you equip us even to do that this coming week, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.